We're here at episode three and my empath heart just wants to give Sean a hug so bad. Why must these people be such trash? So Zelkin is reminding us of the obvious that when a cop gets killed, the loyalty of the rest of the force is with that guy, even when they know that that cop is dirty. So they will manipulate evidence and witnesses. So remember last episode how we learned that Sarah Robinson and Brazel kept popping up throughout the case? Yeah, that's a huge red flag. Why? Well, because they were drug cops not homicide cops. So why are they so involved and why was homicide okay with letting them run their case? So remember Rosa, she knew and had a relationship with a Sarah, but we'll get to that part in a minute. First, she repeats that she saw a black male crouch down next to the car, but came in the Walgreens around 305 took 20 minutes to find soap and had her purchase ring out at 319. Now, that's not really 20 minutes. That's more about 14 minutes, as well as who takes 20 minutes to buy a single bar of soap? This isn't like going into a Target for sandals and coming out with a whole cart full of things after about an hour. That is understandable. This is a Walgreens. There are mile markers everywhere and you're literally just going in to buy spring soap. Anyway, she says, you know, she came out and the guy who was crouched before is now standing next to another guy by the phones and the cop was still sleeping in his car like before. With this time frame, Rosa's not really a witness to anything. The murder happened at 3.40 a.m. And she claims to have left around 3.19 a.m. So why is she their biggest witness against Sean? So Sarah and Robinson bring her to the station after Sean is arrested to look at a photo array. Remember that relationship I mentioned? So Sarah was actually dating Rose's aunt. There was a familial connection between the two. McNeely says that it didn't raise a red flag because family members of police officers help in crimes all the time. Mind you, Sarah and Robinson are always present with Rosa whenever she gives statements or identifications. So on this first time, she didn't identify Sean. And she stated that one of the guys in the photos is someone who stalked her or something like that. So instead of scrapping the entire array, they simply cover that guy's photo and tell her to not consider him and to just look at the other pictures and tell us if you see him. Now, she now knows that the guy must be in the photos because that's what they're saying to her indirectly. She then picks another guy who isn't Sean. 
Sarah and Robinson then take her out and have a conversation with her privately for a couple minutes before Sarah rushes back in and says that she can pick him out now. She then comes back on the third try and picks Sean. They don't make a new photo array. They don't ask Sarah and Robinson to leave. How she was suddenly able to pick him out on the third time after being outside with them for a few minutes. I mean... What the hell did they allow to happen here? The second in-person lineup comes up, and again, Sarah and Robinson are with her for this one, too. After that lineup, Phyllis Broker apparently had some concerns about Sarah and Robinson's involvement, so she asked them to make statements about how the identifications happened under oath. They get pissed about it, but they have to. Robinson takes it as a joke and gets away with it. Sarah claims he didn't help her pick out Sean. As soon as they finish their statements, which were jokes, they called the detectives union, who were then furious that a homicide prosecutor would dare ask a detective to give a statement under oath. The DA, Martin, got a letter demanding that broker be removed from the case and thankfully but also not thankfully he didn't give in to the pressures of the union he didn't take her off the case unthankfully because she was part of this story in railroading sean but sean's lawyer argued that rose's statement should be removed due to one, picking out two other people and two, her relationship with Asera. The judge ruled in favor of the prosecution and said that the defense didn't muster any evidence to suggest police acted improperly when she couldn't identify him then minutes later picked him. No evidence? That entire situation is the evidence. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Is that not obvious to anybody else? So we see juror number one. Her name is Catherine Hunt, and she was on Sean's first trial, which took place January 4th, 1995. Sean's lawyers come up with the theory that Patterson shot Mulligan and that Sean had no idea but hid the gun for him. The reason they had the theory about Terry was because there were five identical finger swipes that belonged to Terry. Now, there is no palm print, just the fingers, which I will let you decide how you feel about that. The prosecution's theory was that they came to the Walgreens, saw the cops sleeping, moved the car next to Victor Brown's house, which if you saw the photo or saw where it was located, it's really not that convenient. Shot him, stole his weapon, and then ran off. Phyllis claimed Sean took the guns and hid them. It's now Rosa's turn to testify, and she claims during prosecution questioning that she saw Sean before on a bus. When Zelkin questions her, he highlights the relationship between her and Sarah. Catherine Hunt, who was juror number one, 
She remembers feeling like that was fishy. Girl, don't we all? And the other witness who really stuck out to her, that was Sean's uncle. David is Sean's uncle. Uh, his mother's brother. It was Detective Brazel who approached him. So they started asking Uncle David for information about any conversations that he may have had with Sean. David Murray brought to the police that he had taken his nephew out in a field or a backyard or someplace and pressed him to answer questions about what had happened at Walgreens that night. And then he told the police what Sean had told him. So David gives his second statement on October the 5th and he says that Sean told him he went in to get Pampers and when he came out the car wasn't there. His friend Terry said come on Sean come on let's go then they started to run. When they got to the car Sean asked what's wrong and Terry said that he shot someone and then passed him the two guns. Now, here's the problems with that whole thing. The timeline doesn't match. His receipt is for 3.01 a.m. Rosa claims at 3.05 a.m. that she saw him crouched and the cop was still sleeping around 3.20. The suspected time of death was 3.40 a.m. And the biggest one of all, no gunshots were heard when Sean was in the Walgreens, nor when Rosa was in the Walgreens. So David said that he had no choice but to testify because he was out on parole. Not only did they pressure him, but they pressured Latia, Sean's girlfriend, using her young child against her. So we get this cute little moment of Sean and Latia reminiscing about when they first met, whether it was daytime or nighttime, what she was wearing, just the cute little stuff that couples in love like to do. But he says that it was love at first sight for him. So he remembers everything clearly. At the time, Latia was being harassed by the police for days and Phyllis Broker called to meet with her. She recalls her being friendly at first, but that they kept stressing that Sean was going to hurt her and they could give her money and put her up somewhere. Latia is like, Sean protects and shelters her. He would never hurt her. Because she told the truth, Phyllis then said they could take her son. She told her they had the power to take her son from her. Being 19, she couldn't let that happen. She remembers getting to the courthouse and they asked her to take her fingerprints for the record. Welp, wouldn't you know, her prints suddenly ended up on Mulligan's gun. With everything they were doing to her, she testified and stated that Sean put the guns in her room, therefore connecting Sean to the guns. However, no one else's fingerprints were on the gun except for hers, despite supposedly being handled by at least four people, including Mulligan. It's January 12th, 1995, and the jury deliberation has begun. Mr. Foreman and members of the jury, 
You've heard the closing summations or arguments. As I've said, and I'm now going to instruct you on the law that you are to apply to the facts that you find in this case in arriving at your verdicts. I will continue to indicate to you throughout the course of these instructions until you get sick and tired of hearing me say it. Even if the defendant didn't himself shoot Officer Mulligan and take his weapon, but that it was Patterson who in fact did those things, the defendant nevertheless was there present as a joint venturer and therefore is as guilty as Patterson would be if those are the facts that you find in this case. Catherine stated that the foreman stated that they have to come to a conclusion. And when asked why, he said, because we have a dead cop. She also states there were racial overtones there as well, which we definitely understand. She says when they told the judge they couldn't come to a unanimous conclusion, the judge told them to keep trying. Sean remembers feeling like when he said keep trying, the judge was trying to force them to find him guilty. This black judge was part of a system trying to railroad a young black man willingly. They deliberated for eight days. They got to a point of nine to three not guilty after changing some guilty verdicts over to not guilty. She asked one of the holdouts if he would ever change his verdict, and he says no. So she said they were done. You won't change your mind, and we have to have a unanimous decision. So they send out a note of a hung jury. After the mistrial, Martin says they plan to go again until he gets a conviction. His attorneys felt confident that everything would be okay and that the hung jury was a good sign. It's Terry's trial, and because of the fingerprint evidence, in air quotes, he is convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. With that guilty verdict, Sean worried his next trial could result in the same verdict. March 21st, 1995. During the second trial, a juror asked the judge about joint venture, and if Sean didn't know what Terry was going to do, could he reasonably be found guilty? The judge wouldn't say no. Dr. Raymond Mulvey, who was a juror in the second trial, felt there was a lot he wanted to know but wasn't allowed to and felt that the trial wasn't enough. Maybe another day or two of evidence, such as what led up to everything. Was there a history between Sean and Mulligan? All good questions without answers. He also felt like the uncle kept trying to finish a sentence and was being shut down by the prosecutors and that it would be stricken from the record. He felt if the uncle was allowed to finish what he was trying to say, that it could have altered his perception. After about three days, they also did a mistrial as those who were no's weren't moving on that verdict. Catherine felt vindicated when the second jury came to the second conclusion. I was not convinced coming out of this case that the truth always came out. There was a number of us that were relieved that when there was not a conviction, that we actually didn't make a decision on this person's life. It was going to be another 
potentially another case or another set of people or not or whatever the DA was going to do. So September the 6th, 1995, they trash on for a third time. Zuckin and Duncan remark that they've never seen three. And it's literally because it was a cop killing that they kept trying him. With the same judge, which feels wrong, by the way, the third jury deliberated for three hours and somehow came back guilty. He was sentenced to life without parole and 30 to 40 years for the armed robbery and an additional five to 10 years for possession of a firearm. When Catherine heard a third jury convicted, she found out that she knew someone on that jury. And when they met, she asked how. And the lady replied, how could you not? Upon further questions, she learned that they pulled Uncle Dave and adjusted their case after the second trial. Sean Ellis was possibly convicted in part by the work of corrupt Boston police detectives Kenneth Acera, Walter Robinson, and John Brazel. The first two may have influenced the testimony of a key witness who saw Ellis at the scene of the crime. It may be months before a decision is made on whether or not to grant Ellis a new trial. For now, the prosecutors are convinced that he received the right verdict at his last trial. And he definitely did not. But that's everything. That's it for episode three of Trial 4. We made it through another episode, you guys. Heavy stuff, but we did it. Sean cries in this episode. I want to hug him. But we did it. Thanks so much for listening. And see you next week where we delve into the corrupt cops in this case. It's going to be a good one. Bye.